Good evening. Would you open your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 13, this evening? I calculated the other day that including tonight, there have been 16,835 nights that I've been alive. Oh, well, I didn't expect that. Thanks. I thank you. My mother thanks you. Some of those nights certainly stand out more than other nights. A lot of them I frankly forget, but some of them are very paramount in my mind. A little over 20 years ago was a special evening in early spring when I asked Lenya Farley to be my wife. I remember the night because I bumbled and fumbled over asking her. I didn't know quite how to do it. I'd never done it. And she wasn't quite sure what I was getting at. And she finally said, I said yes. I said, what do you mean you said yes? To what? You asked me to marry you. I said, yes, I would. Really? She goes, that's right. Then I shot to my feet and I said, no, wait a minute. We have to talk about this. <laughs> I'll never forget that evening. I also remember a night about, well, 28 years ago, a warm summer evening in San Jose, California, when I was watching television, and Dr. Billy Graham gave an invitation. And he said, and if you're watching by television, you can know Christ. <laughs> and I felt like God was speaking to my heart, and so I prayed to receive him. Now, of all those 16,835 nights, including the night that I have lived, those two nights changed everything for me. I am completely different because of those two nights and other nights. For 12 men in an upper room in southwest Jerusalem with Jesus, there was a night that would change everything. It was the night that we see featured here in John's Gospel, beginning in chapter 13. A solitary evening spent alone with Jesus in an upper room at Passover. They'd spent many a night with Jesus. They had spent nights under the Galilean skies, after days were filled with miracles, calming the storm, walking on the water, feeding 5,000. Can't you picture the disciples wide-eyed going, Wow! What a day! What a night! The nights they would spend in the house of Jesus' friend Lazarus in Bethany, especially the night after he was raised from the dead. What a night that was. Or the nights they would spend in the Garden of Gethsemane, because Jesus often went there, the Bible says, encamped before Jerusalem. But this night was different, because... In a few hours, Jesus Christ will be arrested, he will suffer, and he will be killed. They don't know that, but that's going to happen. And they're going to look back on this night of intense discipleship. That's what it was. They're going to look back and say, that was a night that changed everything for me. It made everything different. That's the night he took us alone and spent those last few hours and taught us what it means to follow him. And that's what we want to look at, not only tonight, but in the next several weeks. We're going to cover five chapters, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. If you look in your Bible, it's almost all red letter. 
That's because Jesus is doing all the talking. It's called the Upper Room Discourse, the longest recorded message Jesus ever gave. And He gave it to just a few. It's recorded for us, but it was just for the disciples. If you only had a few hours to live and you knew that you did, what would you tell your friends? What message would you want to pass on to them? It's an interesting question in light of the fact that Jesus is spending that kind of an evening with these men and their lives will change because of this intense discipleship training. Change. That's what it's all about. That's what I hope will happen to us as we go through this series of studies that will be discipled. Change is healthy. It's important. Change gets us out of ruts, right? It keeps us on the edge. We need change in order to grow. And it could be that you find yourself in a spiritual plateau. You've grown, but you know, it's just sort of stale lately these days. You're not so excited about reading the Bible or about fellowship or about prayer. Been there, heard that. And deep in your heart, you want more. You want to grow. You want to go further. Oh, you've spent many a night with Jesus, so to speak, many a night in the Bible, many a day at church. But you want so much more. You want to come alive. Howard Hendricks in Leadership Magazine said that every church has 16% of its members that will never change. That's a lot. 16% that will never change. He says, quote, The tragedy is that I see young pastors every day leaving the ministry all because of that 16%. What they should be doing is concentrating on the 84% who are ripe for change. Wouldn't it be great if 84% of our church were filled with radical disciples of Jesus Christ, ripe for change, ready to go for it, fully alive? An unknown author wrote, Live churches are constantly changing. Dead churches don't have to. Live churches have lots of noisy kids. Dead churches are fairly quiet. Live churches' expenses always exceed their income. Dead churches take in more than they ever dreamed of spending. Live churches are constantly improving for the future. Dead churches worship their past. Live churches move out in faith. Dead churches operate totally by human sight. Live churches focus on people. Dead churches focus on programs. Live churches dream great dreams of God. Dead churches relive nightmares. Live churches don't have can't in their dictionary. Dead churches have nothing but. Live churches evangelize. Dead churches fossilize. Don't be a fossil, all right? It's time to change. And I think that the next few chapters, though you have read them before, no doubt will help you in your growth, your discipleship. Every year at Passover, built into the, the evening, is a series of questions that the kids ask the parents. The first question is, Daddy, what makes this night different from all other nights? And there are answers that are given. Well, I want to ask that question with this particular night, Passover, Jesus with the disciples. What makes this night different from all other nights? And there's three answers to that question. They're found in your outline. This night was framed by a sense of timing. 
This night focused on an act of serving. And this night was filled with shades of meaning. I want to explain all of that to you as we go. But let's read the first five verses. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, that He should depart from this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, that he had come from God and was going to God, rose up from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. You may have noticed that in the first two verses, there are words that speak of time. My attention was drawn to them this week. Notice, now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour had come. And then verse 2, and supper being ended. There's all sorts of words that speak of a unique time. This is what's happening. Chapter 13 forms a break in the Gospel of John. Here's how. The first 12 chapters deal with the entire ministry of Jesus Christ, which was about three and a half years. Chapters 1 through 12 cover three and a half years, whereas chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 cover one night. That's significant. We could even go further than that. Because it says in chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that's when He was born. That's His birth. That's His incarnation. So you could say this. The first 12 chapters of John cover everything from birth almost to death. 12 chapters. 30 years. But 5 chapters cover one night. We could even go further than that because the very first verse of John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through Him. So he goes back, John does, all the way to eternity past. So you might say chapters 1 through 12 cover everything from eternity past up until the upper room discourse in 12 chapters, but five chapters are devoted to one night, actually a few hours of Jesus with his disciples. Look at the occasion. It says, now before the feast of the Passover. That's significant. Jesus will die on the Jewish Passover. Passover is sort of like our Easter. Maybe better than that, our Christmas, because it was such a huge event for the nation of Israel. It was their biggest feast. It was one of three annual feasts that everyone had to attend within the environs of Jerusalem, but everybody wanted to. I mean, everybody, no matter where you lived in the world, if you were Jewish, you say every year, next year in Jerusalem. Man, I want to go to Jerusalem and celebrate this feast. It was a huge event. And what was it doing? Well, it was commemorating the lamb that was slain in Egypt. When they took a lamb and killed it so that the angel of death would pass over. That's where you get the word, pass over the homes of the Israelites. And blood in the form of a cross was put on the lintels and doorposts 
of the houses of the children of Israel. Ever since that event, Passover became a yearly event. People streamed to Jerusalem for this celebratory but very bloody event. Bloody, yes. Josephus the historian tells us that in one Passover alone around the time of Christ, some 256,000 lambs were butchered for sacrifice in the Jewish temple. That would serve over 2 million people who had come into the city. The lambs were sacrificed in the temple during a two-hour period. Hundreds and hundreds of priests averaged the killing of about two lambs per minute. They were quickly dressed and handed over to the person who brought the lamb, and it was immediately taken out and roasted for the Passover supper, which is where Jesus and the disciples are at. Now, I want you to get that in your mind. On the Temple Mount, all of the blood of all of these lambs went into some kind of a, a spigot, a, a, a drainage system that brought the blood, history tells us, out into the Kidron Valley so that if you were coming to Jerusalem at the time of Passover and you walked over the bridge of the Kidron Valley, you saw a river flowing with blood. And that would be a graphic reminder of what your sin and my sin does. It kills and the need for a spotless sacrifice. All of that imagery is the backdrop for Jesus and this upper room with his disciples. In that upper room, at this Passover, it wasn't the blood of the lamb in Egypt that was the focus. It was the soon-to-be-shed blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, as John the Baptist said of him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As Peter said, here is the lamb, a precious lamb without spot and without blemish. Notice something else. Look at the audience and look at what they are called, the audience in the room that night. Before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Isn't that a great description of followers of Christ? His own. They belong to Him. What do you do for a living? I belong to Jesus. I'm His own. That's the description. That's the audience. Here's my point. In the upper room that evening, there was no large crowd. It was not general admission. This was not an evangelistic crusade. This was just the intimate associates, the disciples of Jesus Christ, which means the message contained in these chapters are not for general consumption. They're for followers of Christ. These are words that promote discipleship, growth, for those who are already following Christ. That's not to say that some of them don't have evangelistic appeal, and they can't be tailored toward evangelism, but primarily, this is for people who are now saved. They've come to Christ. It's for them to grow by. Which brings up sort of a, a question. If this is Jesus' last night, he has one last evening before he is arrested, and taken before all of the trials, and then crucified, why wouldn't he go to the crowds? Why wouldn't he go outside to Jerusalem where there are millions of unbelievers who don't really know of him yet? 
Why would he sequester himself into a little upper room with just a few guys? He could give an altar call, man. He could preach a message, do a few miracles, wow the crowd, and then say, now you come to Christ. He didn't do that. You know why? It's not his job. It's their job. It's the disciples' job to do that. Jesus told them that when he called them. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. I want you to look at this. I want you to keep a marker, a pencil, a piece of gum, something in that chapter, and turn over to Matthew chapter 9 for just a moment. Matthew 9, the end of that chapter. There's a few verses we should look at together. Verse 35, Then Jesus went about all of the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So far, so good. Jesus is doing all the work. But when he saw the multitudes... He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, The harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest, send out laborers into his harvest. Do you think they did that? I bet they did. Do you think they went off and said, Okay, I'm going to do what Jesus just told me to do. Lord, send out laborers into the harvest. Okay, now Jesus answers their prayers. Verse 5 of chapter 10. These twelve Jesus sent out. They became their own answer to their own prayer. Lord, send out labors. Uh, Boys, I'm sending you out. Your prayers have been answered. (laughs) This is the way Jesus Christ reaches the unbelieving world. You get saved... You get discipled and you get out of here. That's how he does it. You get saved, you get discipled, you get turned loose, man, out into the world. You and I become those evangelists. We are the salt. We are the light that reaches our generation. That's the purpose of the church, is simply to train disciples to go out and do the work of the ministry. And that's the answer to altar calls. We've had a lot of them lately. We've seen a lot of people come to Christ. But you know, inevitably, if I go one night without an altar call, why didn't you give an altar call tonight? Hey, why don't you give an altar call? That's the pattern. You and I are to go out and do it. The altar call in the church is an exception. Because a church is for believers. Unbelievers can come and eavesdrop all they want. But this is for believers to get discipled. Jesus saw the multitudes. Multitudes. If you lined up every lost person on earth, it is estimated, and you lined them up shoulder to shoulder, you would form a line that goes around planet earth 30 times. We need lots of laborers. Well... We need more crusades. I agree. But more than that, we just need a whole bunch of disciples who are willing to go out. That's all we need, really. Listen to this. If you could take a stadium and you could fill the stadium full of 50,000 people every night, every night somewhere you had a stadium, you had the budget to fill 50,000 people into a stadium. And every night 
a thousand new people came to Christ so that every night of the week you're having a crusade where a thousand people come to Christ. In 35 years, you will be further behind the task of world evangelism than the day you started. You say, how do you figure? Because of the exponential growth of the birth rate, in 35 years there will be so many people that the, 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 the ratio will be still more unbelievers the day you end with that campaign than the day you began. That's 35 years of 1,000 people a night. However, if you were the only Christian on earth and you prayed that you could lead one other person to Christ in a year so that after one year there were two Christians on earth and then you prayed to lead each one other person to Christ so that after two years you have four people and then those four do the same thing so that in three years you have eight people and four years, 16 and 32 and 64, you see that the exponential growth would be that in 35 years you won't be further behind the task. You'll be fighting over pagans to evangelize. That's what will happen. That's what individual evangelism can do. You'll be saying, I'm going to witness to that guy. Oh, no, you don't. That's mine. You had that guy last night. This is mine. And so the key is more crusades, absolutely. But more personal evangelism, certainly. I want you to look at something else in our text here. And that is the awareness that Jesus lived with. It says, Jesus knew that his hour had come. It's an interesting thing. You read a lot about this. That Jesus lived under this perpetual awareness of a timetable. Remember in Cana of Galilee, John chapter 2, mom tried to get him to fix the problem and Jesus said, Woman, my hour has not come. And they tried to arrest Jesus one other time in the temple. But he escaped from them for his hour had not yet come. Now he knows his hour has come. And in John 17, a few chapters later, in praying to the Father, he says, Father, the hour has come. What was he speaking of? He was speaking of atonement, redemption, the reason he had come, his mission to the earth. I already told you how there's 12 chapters that are devoted to everything up to this this point, and then five chapters devoted to a few hours one evening. But listen to this. In all four Gospels... There are only four chapters that describe the first 30 years of Jesus' life. There are 85 chapters that cover the last three and a half years of his life. Of those 85 chapters, 56 are devoted to everything up to the final week. 29 of the 85 are devoted to the final week. Of those 29, 13 of them are devoted to the last day of his life. Or to put it in this perspective, the events of Jesus' final day, his hour of atonement, are 579 verses in all four Gospels. That's because that is the peak of redemptive history. All pre-New Testament history looks forward to the cross. All post-New Testament history looks back to the cross. He was called the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. His hour is what it's all about, man. Graham Scroggie was right when he said, you cut the Bible anywhere and it will bleed. It will bleed. Because its whole focus 
is on the timing of his hour of redemption. So this night was a special night. It was the last night they would spend with Jesus like this. It was a night of intense discipleship, but they were totally unaware of it until later on. I want to apply this. Let's learn, by God's grace, to live with a sense of timing in our lives. To kind of live in anticipation that this ordinary day, this ordinary night, this normal ordinary time could be a very special time that God has ordained for me. To live with that kind of timing. You remember how Uncle Mordecai said to Esther in Persia, giving her the challenge to help with the plight of the Jews, he said, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This could be your time, gal. This could be God's anointed time. Moses prayed in Psalm 90, where we began before the worship, so Lord, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. If you're 35 years old, you have about 500 hours left to live. You said, pardon me? I don't quite get that. If you're 35 and you live, let's say, another 36 years, and if you take away the time you're going to spend eating and sleeping and getting dressed and going to the doctor and that kind of stuff, disposable time left over in that next 36 years is about 500 hours. What are you going to do with it? It's more than counting your time. The whole point of that is to make your time count. Emerson wrote, Guard well your spare moments. They are like uncut diamonds. Discard them and their value will never be known. Improve them and they will become the brightest gems in a useful life. Now look at verse 3. The night was not only framed by a sense of timing, it was focused on an act of serving. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose up from the supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, what's all this about? Washing feet. What's going on here? In the Middle East... Well, in the whole world, a couple thousand years ago, it was pretty much dirt roads everywhere. So if you walked during dry season with open sandals, which they did, they had no closed-toed shoes, their feet got really gnarly, very dusty, caked with dust. If it was the rainy season, well, you can imagine liquid mud over their feet. So when you would go into a dwelling, there was always a water pot that the servant of the house, if it was a host, would hire to wash the feet of somebody coming in. Well, the problem here is that Jesus and his disciples, they don't own the home. The servant isn't there. They don't have servants running around them. There's a poor bunch of Galileans. There is no servant in the room that night. So who should be washing the feet? Oh, any one of those disciples. But would they? Did they? Oh, no. Now, if you were to interview them, all of them would have volunteered to wash Jesus' feet, I bet. Yeah, he's, he's Jesus. Those blessed feet, I'll wash them. Oh, but will you wash Peter's feet? 
Are you kidding? That fisherman, they stink, man. No way. But here Jesus is doing it. Oh, there's something else. Luke's account of the upper room discourse, uh, Luke says they were arguing among themselves who would be the greatest. They were far from serving. That was the last thing on their mind. Hey, Peter said probably, you know, I'm the greatest because Jesus said, I am the rock, remember? I'm the solid guy, man. I'm the stable one. And I'm sure Thomas just said, I doubt it. (laughs) And then maybe John piped up. You know, John said, well, I'm the one that Jesus loves. You know, my gospel, I write that a lot. I'm the one that Jesus loved. And Thomas said, I doubt it. And so they were arguing. And in the midst of that, Jesus gets up and washes their feet. Why does he do it? Well, first of all, it's based on authority. This is interesting. Notice it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. In other words, Jesus was aware at that moment who he was and that all of the power of the universe was at his disposal. And what does he do with all that power? Wash his feet? Okay, here's some perspective. I go to the gym and I work out. No, don't look at me that way. So it doesn't show. But it does show on some other guys. I see some of these guys and their muscles are huge. These are hulks, man. Their, their muscles are intimidating. What do they do with all those muscles? Well, they look good. What do they do with all that strength, all that power? If you were to interview one of them after a workout, hey, Mr. America, what are you going to do with all that strength, all those muscles? Do you think he'd say, I'm going to go wash feet? (laughs) I don't think so. What does Jesus, the creator, the sustainer of all of the material universe, do with all that power? He washes feet. This is not Messiah stuff, man. This is below his station in life, right? It's like the President of the United States cleaning toilets in the White House. Queen Elizabeth washing her own sheets, you know, or or, uh, Elvis tuning his own guitar. Thank you very much. (laughs) But Jesus does it. Something to note about that. I believe that if you know who you are, you don't have to prove it to anybody. If you are secure in Christ... Your security is linked to your identity. I know who I am. I don't have to prove it to anybody. Something else. It was based not only on his authority, but on his destiny. It says, and that he had come from God and that he was going to God. Jesus knew who he was. He knew who um, sent him, the Father from heaven. He knew that he was God, the second person of the Trinity. He knew that he had come into this world for a purpose. He knew that soon he would be at the right hand of the Father once again. He knew that he was going to be betrayed by one of the very guys in the room, that one of them would deny him, named Peter. He knew all about these bumbling, fumbling, motley men. But he could love them because he knew his past and he knew his future He knew where he had come from. He knew where he was going, which gave him the freedom to love in the present. And I'm going to tie this together in a moment. Something else. It was based on charity. Verse 1. It's a very interesting text. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
or he loved them to the uttermost. Or if you have a New International Version, it says, he showed them the full extent of his love. What he was doing in washing their feet was because he loved them so much. He looked at Peter, and they were arguing with each other. Here's Peter, Mr. Cool, Mr. Macho. You know, Jesus, everybody here is a flake. They're going to deny you, but I won't do it. Jesus probably smiled. Yeah, right. Then there was Thomas, like Eeyore the donkey, you know, and Winnie the Pooh. Everything was negative. There were James and John in the room. They were the guys that wanted to smoke the Samaritan village. Lord, let us take care of them. We're going to call fire down from heaven. We'll take care of it. And there was Judas who was about to betray him. All of these guys. You know, I bet you Satan was whispering in Jesus' ear, so this is the fruit of your three-year ministry, huh? But Jesus loved them. Question. What do you consider to be a menial task in your life? Think of something right now that is below your status, your station in life. Where at work you would say, that's not my job. That belongs to somebody lower than me. That should be coupled with another question. Who do you find it hard in your life to love, to serve, to forgive? However, Jesus did. Why? Because when you're at peace with your past and you're secure in your future, you can love in the present. That's why. You're at peace with your past. I know where I've come from. You're secure in your future. I'm going to heaven. It really frees you up to love people in the present. You don't get all hung up in yourself. You serve others. So what was a night to remember? The night God washed feet. The night love was on its knees. It was a night that was framed with a sense of timing. It focused on an act of serving. And finally, it was filled with shades of meaning. And I thought this is important before we jump into the verses next week with Peter and this foot washing. There's a verse that sort of troubled me every time I read this. And so I just spent a little more time looking at it and praying over it and studying it this week. And that's in verse 1. It says, He wanted to show them the full extent of His love, or He wanted to show His love to utter perfection. So He washed their feet? I mean, that's it? That's the full extent of His love? That's love to perfection? Washing feet of followers? And that is why I don't think that this was just a menial task he was showing. It wasn't only an example, though that's part of it, and he'll make that point next time when we're together with Peter and the rest. But more than that, Jesus was was performing for them a parable, if you will, a parable about what his whole ministry on earth was all about, why he had come. That's the full extent of his love what he would do on the cross. I want you to notice quickly five things. He rose up from supper, number one. Number two, he laid aside his garments. Number three, he took a towel and girded himself. Number four, he poured water in a basin, began to wash their feet. Number five, he dried them with a towel. First, he rose up from supper. He had already done that in a greater way when he rose up, you might say, from the banquet table in heaven and made the voluntary decision to submit to his Father and go down to the earth and perform atonement. 
He was there with the Father and the Spirit in that beautiful banquet of fellowship. But he rose up. And he did it willingly, by the way. I don't want you to think that there was some kind of little Trinitarian dialogue in heaven and they had to vote on who had to come down to earth and Jesus lost. No, Jesus voluntarily came to this earth, laid his life down of himself. Second, he laid aside his garments. Sounds like Philippians 2 now, doesn't it? His garments of glory, he emptied himself, Paul writes in Philippians 2. He didn't empty himself of divinity, but of the prerogatives of divinity, the intimacy with the Father, the independent use of his power. Three, he took the towel and girded himself. The way I see it is that he wrapped his divinity in a cloak of humanity. Two natures, fully God, fully man. God with skin on. Like the little boy I've told you about who in the storm, he was crying out for his father, Father, help me! The, the thunder and the lightning, they're so, they, they, they scare me. And he was crying. And his father said, Now, son, I've told you many a time that when the storm gets that bad, God will take care of you. Pray to God. God loves you. And the little boy said, Daddy, I know that God loves me, but when the storm's that bad, I want somebody with skin on. (laughs) Jesus was God with skin on. He wrapped Himself in humanity so that He could relate to all of the things we go through. Number four, He poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. In a few hours, he would be washing the sins of the world with his blood. But I think really what this speaks about is washing the daily sins off the feet, off the lives of the disciples. Because the disciples are already saved. They're already following him. And Jesus will say to Peter, Hey, once you're cleansed, you're cleansed, man. You just got to wash your feet. That's the issue. When we walk through this world, our feet get dirty. Our walks get defiled. And we need to be cleansed. We need to be sanctified, set apart, made holier. And then finally, number five, he dried them with a towel. Jesus didn't just wash the feet and let them drip dry. You guys, look, I did the hard work. You can dry your own stinky feet. Jesus completed the work. Philippians 1 says, He who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ. So Jesus Christ is committed to a work of sanctifying you, cleansing you, and completing that work. He's not going to leave you all wet. He's not going to let you stay a drip. He's committed to finishing the work, taking you all the way through. Finally, I want to draw your attention to a contrast of a couple of things here. And this is the significance of this night in contrast. John does something deliberately, I believe. He contrasts the action of Judas. Notice here in verse 2, he betrays Jesus. With the action of Jesus who sacrifices his time, his power, to wash the disciples' feet. Contrast them. Judas, who thought about nobody but himself. Jesus who thought about everyone but himself. One who hated, one who was jealous, one who was selfish versus one who gave, one who sacrificed. Now, so we don't miss the point, notice what John does. It says, the devil 
having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. See the contrast of sources here? Somebody said to me this week, so there was only 13 in that upper room? No, 14. An uninvited guest named Satan. You know why? Satan opposes every work that God does. Whenever God ever God does a great work, Satan will be there to try to ruin it, to try to oppose it, to come against it. Now, I want you to notice the two different styles. The style of Jesus, the style of Satan, as seen here in Judas. Two different ways of doing life. I'm going to read a couple portions of Scripture that I think point that out. Here's the way of Jesus, Philippians chapter 2. Listen carefully. Though He was God, He did not demand and cling to His rights as God. He made Himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, He obediently humbled Himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. That's the way of Jesus. It's displayed here. He came to give. He came to serve. He came to empty Himself. He didn't think about himself. Now listen to the way of the devil as described in Isaiah 14. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. You hear hear the difference? Jesus is saying... I'll go down to earth. Satan is saying, I'm going up to the top. I'm going to be like God. Now, God has the final word in this. The Father has the final word. In Philippians, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and given Him the name above all names. In the Isaiah 14 passage, God says, For you will be brought down to the depths of hell. To Satan. So, Jesus says, I'll go down. God says, because of that, I'll exalt you. You're going up above every name. Satan says, I'm going up to the top. God says, you're going down, buddy. Big time. The way of Satan, the way of Jesus. Two contrasting views of life. Now you understand why Jesus said, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Listen. God did not save you to be a sensation. He saved you to be a slave, a servant to Him and to His kids. The world has its mottos. You've heard them all. Have it your way. You deserve a break today. Do yourself a favor. Jesus has His own mottos. He would say, Give yourself away to others. Don't be so selfish. Live for others. Be secure in your past, secure in your future so that you can love in the present. An admirer asked the great, late, great conductor, Leonard Bernstein, he said, Sir, what is the hardest position for you to fill in the orchestra? Without hesitation, Bernstein said, Second fiddle. And he explained, I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find one who plays second violin with as much enthusiasm or second French horn or second flute, oh, that's a problem. Yet if no one plays second, there's no harmony. Are you part of the 84% 
ripe for change? Or are you part of that little minority of 16% that will never change? Even as Satan was in that room, I think we should also not be so naive as to forget to realize Satan is probably in this room tonight. Why? Because God's doing a work, that's why. And wherever God does a work, Satan's there to, to do a counter work. To whisper betrayal in somebody's ear. To fight in that battle of eternity. And so, is it with you? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, who came to this earth to serve you, to give his life away to you, so that you could be in heaven? Have you constantly just listened to the gospel and then shut your heart to it? So that every time an appeal comes like this, you just say, ah, forget it, or ah, next time, or whatever. Don't let him win. Heavenly Father, we know that you're committed to growth. You want us to be that stature of the measure of the fullness of Christ. And we've got to admit, we have a long way to go, all of us. But you've made that commitment to our growth. You clean us, Lord, after you catch us. You wash us. You daily wash us. Then you finish the work, you dry us. But Lord, we can't help but wonder if there are some others in this room who haven't said yes to the servant Lord, Jesus Christ, who came to redeem, who rose up from the banquet table of heaven, laid aside his garments of glory, wrapped himself in a body of flesh and came to this earth for one hour one purpose, one event, and that is a cross to save anyone who would call on you from sin. As we're praying right now, if you've come tonight and you've never honestly, authentically surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do it. An opportunity to do it.